Will there be a transition period between the time of Christ's coming here on earth and the beginning of peace in the millennium? Or will there be difficulties that will be challenging Christ? And how and what does the second and when does the second exodus occur? So we'll look forward to the kingdom coming. And every day, I hope you pray, as I do, uh, your kingdom come. Dr. Douglas Winnale, in the latest uh, World Ahead report that you had in your local churches, had a commentary on thy kingdom come. And I don't know how many times a week or a day you pray your kingdom come, but I, I must pray it at least one or two times every day. When you look at the world and what's happening, God's kingdom needs to come. So let's understand when we return to this earth as kings and priests along with Christ after the wedding, there'll be a lot of work to accomplish. The nations that will survive will have to be taught a new way of life. They will have to learn how to submit to the new world government. So in today's sermon, we'll discuss the transition from World War III to God's new ruling government, world government. We already mentioned, I won't turn there, but Revelation 6-8, we know that the result of the four horsemen of pestilence, disease, war, and uh, famine uh, will kill one-fourth of the population of the earth. And if we assume there are eight billion people, that will be two billion that will be killed. And then later on, in Revelation 9, verse 18, the uh, sixth trumpet plague, another third of human beings will be killed. So if there are six billion left, that's two billion more killed, leaving four billion out of the original eight billion. So we know that at least half of the population, if we have those figures uh, approximately, half of the world's population will be killed. Four billion out of eight billion people. And the Israelites are going to be really punished too. Not only do you read in Ezekiel 5 and verse 12 the prophecy of thirds, that a third will die from sword, a third will die from famine, but a third will go into captivity. And even of those, God says in Isaiah, you will go out a hundred and come back ten. So of all the Israelites, the nations, only one-tenth of the Israelites are going to survive. So we have work cut out for us when Christ comes back. The title of the sermon today is Establishing the Kingdom. We'll have a lot of work to do when the refugees come back from captivity and come into the Holy Land. And five billion people who have survived all kinds of turmoil and war and pestilence, famine, the seven trumpet plagues and the seven last plagues, they will have a lot of rehabilitation, and we will help them to rehabilitate. Just give you a quick review of the prophetic framework, and we've discussed it several times. If we turn to Matthew 24, 29, you see the sequence of events. <clears throat> that lead up to the second coming. Matthew 24, uh, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. 
the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So the, giving the sequence of against, you have the great tribulation mentioned in verses 21 and 22, but after the tribulation of those days, you have the heavenly signs. And that's the sixth seal that's mentioned in Revelation, the sixth chapter. So that introduces the day of the Lord that we, we discussed earlier. But when the heavenly signs occurs, what happens? Revelation, the seventh chapter. You have 144,000 each. 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of Israel are sealed from the day of the Lord because the, the, tri, the seven last plagues are going to be coming, the, the seven trumpet plagues, that is, during the day of the Lord. So you find here, verse 4, Revelation 7, 144,000 of all the tribes of Israel are sealed. What are they sealed for? Protection during the day of the Lord. And we know that when the, uh, the kingdom begins, there will be 144,000 or more coming back to Israel. But God is going to start with a nuclear force to reestablish the worldwide government with what? With the king over those 12 tribes, who will be uh, King David and the apostles. You might best mention that, uh, Matthew 19, verse 28. When we look at God's government and the wonderful t- world tomorrow, tomorrow's world, the coming kingdom of God, Matthew 20, 19, verse 28. Peter was saying, well, we've left all and followed you. What, what shall we have? Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the generation when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you, have, who, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So the twelve tribes of Israel must exist somewhere on the earth. I know someone asked me about, uh, you know, well, there's, there are more than 144,000 if you have a tenth of the Israelite nation surviving, that's going to be probably several million. But God is going to work with a nucleus. And apparently, uh, each of the tribes, each of the, the apostles will be over one of the tribes of Israel. Those tribes have to exist today if they are going to be ruling over those tribes. So that will be at the beginning of the millennium. Those 144,000 are preserved during the day of the Lord, and then we come to the seventh trumpet. Uh, we have the great tribulation, heavenly signs, and then the day of the Lord, and then the seventh trumpet. And then, of course, at the seventh trumpet, as we've already re- re- rehearsed, we go to the sea of glass with a wedding with Christ, and that'll be glorious, uh, awesome, and, uh, of course, as we've already mentioned, the sumptuous uh, wedding supper that will be there as well. And during the nine days then between the Day of Atonement, uh, between trumpets and the Day of Atonement, uh, will be the seven last plagues uh, poured out. Mr. John O'Gwin writes in the booklet, Revelation, the Mystery Unveiled, page 42. Immediately following chapter 19 of Revelation, which of course tells about our coming back in white horses with Christ, and put the beast and the false prophet in the lake of fire. Uh, what happens that? Well, of course, chapter 20, immediately after that, the day of atonement, Satan is put away. But let me just read from 
uh, page 42 of Revelation, the Mystery Unveiled. Quote, Immediately following chapter 19, we read that Satan will be put away, chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, and the saints will rule with Christ for a thousand years, Revelation 20, verse 4 through 6. Now listen to this. The Day of Atonement will also announce the Jubilee and the Second Exodus. Now this booklet, the Revelation of Mystery Unveiled, uh, was reviewed by the Council of Elders and was uh, first printed in October 2003, 14 years ago. So the information I'm sharing with you is not new. It's been there all along for the past 14 years. Let me repeat that. The Day of Atonement will also announce the Jubilee and the Second Exodus. Note that the Jubilee began on the Day of Atonement, the day that symbolized Satan's banishment. At this point, the remnant of all twelve tribes of Israel will begin to be regathered, will begin to be regathered from their captivity to the land of Israel. Let's, uh, well, we don't need to turn there. Well, let's turn there to Revelation 20 again in verse 1 and realize, yes, in the sequence of events, we come back with Christ, Revelation 19, and uh, all of the armies of the earth are destroyed. And you read in Zechariah, the 14th chapter, that their flesh will dissolve from their bones. Their eyes will melt in their socket. The tongue will melt in their mouth. Those who want to fight against Christ will have uh, very immediate consequences for their rebellion. But Revelation 19, again, uh, we see that the saints come back with Christ. The, the wife, the lamb, his wife has made herself ready, and she's uh, in fine linen, clean and bright. Revelation 19, verse 8. In verse 11, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And that's Christ, faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So we have this awesome proclamation on the Day of Atonement. And uh, as reading again, that symbolized Satan's banishment. At this point, the remnants of all twelve tribes of Israel will begin to be regathered from their captivity to the land of Israel. So that's with the proclamation on the Day of Atonement. Let's turn to uh, Isaiah 27, where we begin a little more about the second exodus that's announced on the Day of Atonement with that trumpet blast for the Jubilee. Right, Isaiah 27 and verse 12. Isaiah 27 and verse 12. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Eternal will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered one by one, you children of Israel. Again, we know the Great Tribulation is the time of Jacob's trouble. They're going to go into captivity. Read that in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. But he shall be saved out of it, it says in Jeremiah 30, about verse 8. So they are going to be in captivity. Ten percent of the Israelites will survive. God is going to begin to regather them in the second exodus, starting with the Day of Atonement. So it shall be, verse 13, in that day the great trumpet will be blown. Now we could say that it's the, on the uh, day of trumpets, but 
Uh, Mr. O'Gwin, in his booklet, Revelation Feels No More Properly, that will be the trumpet blown on the Jubilee Day of Atonement, announcing then the second exodus. So it shall be in that day the great trumpet will be blown that will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Eternal in the holy mount of Jerusalem. So those who are captive in Israel, those who are captive in in um, in Egypt are going to be regathered to the Holy Land. Let's leave you a little more about this second exodus. It's, it's an amazing thing because this is the part at the beginning of the millennium and we will have to help those captives coming back to the Holy Land. Jeremiah, the 23rd chapter. Jeremiah, the 23rd chapter. God has got it all planned in advance. He controls destinies and He controls nations and weather and, of course, the whole universe for that matter. Jeremiah 23, verse 7. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Eternal, that they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel out from the land of Egypt, verse 8, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country and from all the countries where I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. So God is going to regather them from all the lands where they where he had driven the Israelites. Turn to uh, Isaiah 11th chapter, another um, section on uh, the second exodus. Isaiah 11, of course, that's a millennial chapter as well. Isaiah 11, and uh, starting with verse 11, of course, the verses 6 through 9, we have that wonderful picture of... of uh, the change in uh, animal nature and the peace that will be there in, uh, on the world. Isaiah 11 and verse 11. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time. Yes, this is uh, the second exodus. To recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. And he will set up a banner for the nations. He will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Well, I'll get ahead of myself here because verse 13 ties into a, another element of uh, the transition in the beginning of the millennium, and that is reconciliation. What does it say in verse 13? Also the envy of Ephraim shall depart. The adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. And Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. So here where you've had conflicts between the, the house of Israel, the house of Judah, they are all going to be reconciled and live in harmony. That hasn't happened. That will happen yet after the second exodus, when they come back to the Holy Land. Turn back to Ezekiel, the 36th chapter. Ezekiel 36. 
And here again we find that having gone through privation and trials and punishment and destitution, uh, the captives coming back will have a teachable attitude. Ezekiel 36, starting with uh, verse 24. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Of course, we covetousness is idolatry. It tells us in Colossians we have our idols of position and possessions and power. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, I will pour my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Yes, God's statutes and judgments will be kept even during the millennium. And, of course, the holy days are a statute. Tithing is a statute as well. And, of course, you know the other practical statutes of putting a, a, a railing or a fence around the top of your house. Of course, in those days, they would have the flat roofs, and uh, so they had to have a barrier around it. That was one of the statutes. And, and I was re- remember reading the statutes one time when I was a ministerial trainee up in uh, Goebbels Mission, Michigan. And uh, it said that if your neighbor's... Uh, donkey or horse gets away, you need to go get that the donkey and horse and return him to his owner. And it just so happened that a horse got out of uh, one of the neighbor's barns, and so we had to chase him down and uh, try to get him back to his neighbor. But that was just one of the statutes, one of the judgments, and uh, it was practical. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. All these different uh, ideas come to mind. I, I need another hour for preaching, but I think I remember... And this might help uh, some of your teenagers. Uh, when I started my engineering job in Norfolk, Virginia, after uh, being a, having a civil engineering uh, degree and getting a, an advanced uh, certificate at Yale University in traffic and transportation engineering, I was uh, living in Virginia Beach, rented a house from a widow and rented an apartment from her home in uh, Virginia Beach, but worked and commuted to Norfolk, Virginia, for the Southeastern Virginia Regional Planning Commission. And anyway, every day I was reading the Proverbs, every day. And it said, uh, one of the Proverbs says, I I better not digress here too much, but Proverbs 15 and... 15, verse 1. Good. I remembered it. A soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. Anyway, I was, somehow I didn't have a car. I was was walking uh, from the bus stop back to the house, and this two little boys were picking up stones and throwing rocks at me. I said, they're really throwing stones at me? Yes, I guess. Yes, I guess they are. So I went over and grabbed the boy's hand and he dropped his his pebbles and stones. But then come along this big Cadillac convertible, and here comes this big guy out in Bermuda shorts and hairy legs. And he said, did you touch my boy? And I was about to, you know, I'm going to get back at him. Well, I said, oh, I'm sorry, sir. I don't, well, don't do that again. 
A soft answer turns away wrath. That was a real practical... Had I not been reading that this morning, I probably would have gotten to battle with this big guy. Uh, but a soft answer turns away wrath, and uh, I, I apologize. But I said, but those kids are such, you know, throwing rocks at me. Anyway, uh, young people, read the book of Proverbs regularly. and It has practical application in your life. But here again, we find uh, that... God is going to bring them back. They will loathe themselves, back to Ezekiel 36. They're going to loathe themselves because they have really understood their sins. Verse 31, Ezekiel 36, verse 31, Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds, that you were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for all your iniquities and your abominations. But then he goes on, not for your sake do I this, says the Lord eternal. And by the way, every time you come across this expression in the book of Ezekiel, you have Lord, L-O-R-D, in small letters. That means the Hebrew is Adonai. And you have God with small caps, G, but capital O and capital D, small caps. That is the Yahweh. So whenever you find Lord, small, uh, lowercase, and then God, uh, small caps, that's Adonai Yahweh, or Lord uh, Eternal. should be read that way. So far, he says, I will do this, says the Lord Eternal. Let it be known. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord Eternal. On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities, and the ruins shall be rebuilt. The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. Verse 35. So they will say, This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the wasted, desolate, ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Eternal, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Eternal, have spoken it. I will do it. So it's going to be a beautiful restoration at the beginning of the millennium. It will take time as time goes on. And, of course, we call it uh, sustainable agriculture. Uh, we had that uh, 11 years in Big Sandy from 1966 to 1977. We had the agricultural program. We took land that had been um, been over over uh, seeded and over over planted, and uh, the the dry land. We started using agricultural biblical principles, even a land rest, and we started getting earthworms in the regular. Um, soil and the uh, county agents came by and said this is amazing this was just uh, depleted soil and now the soil is again rich and so forth we have sustainable agriculture again well that's what's going to happen in the future when you start living by God's agricultural laws even as well as his spiritual laws it's going to be a beautiful environment and a beautiful uh, civilization so we see then that the Day of Atonement is going to announce that second exodus and uh, will begin the, also in addition to the second exodus that takes place. And I, I doubt that 
they're going to get back in within five days. Maybe some of them will get back from atonement to the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles back to the Holy Land, but you know they're going to come from the north and from the south and all countries where Judah and Israel have been dispersed. Uh, maybe quite a few of them will get back to the Promised Land from uh, in the five days between atonement and the first day of Feast of Tabernacles. I don't know. Uh, we'll we'll see when that happens. But what else is going to happen besides that the beginning in this transition period when the millennium begins? It will also be the second half of Christ's ministry. We, uh, Some of you are familiar with the 70 weeks prophecy. I'll, I'll try to refresh your mind briefly on that. If you go back to Daniel 9.24, the, Christ fulfilled three and a half years of a seven-year ministry. He still has three and a half years yet to fulfill in that 70th week prophesied in Daniel, the ninth chapter. Daniel 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. And he gives the purpose of the 70 weeks, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity. We know that Christ made reconciliation for iniquity. He was our Passover sacrifice for us. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He fulfilled that in the first part of that one-week, seven-year ministry. Bringing in everlasting righteousness. Well, that's really going to be in the future. To seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. The margins had the most holy place, which would be the millennial temple we talked about in Ezekiel 40 through chapter 44, the dimensions of the uh, Jerusalem temple. So he's going to anoint the most holy. He hasn't done that, he hasn't done that yet. Uh, that will be a part of his ministry. I think most of you know that uh, the, the prophecy of the 70 weeks prophecy uh, tells when the Messiah was to appear, and the Jews knew that. Many of them knew the prophecy of Daniel. They could calculate from the prophecy here, verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks, the street will be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, so that'll be sixty-two plus seven, after sixty-nine weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself, and the people of the prince who is to come. So when you find the decree of Artaxerxes, which is the decree to restore and build Jerusalem, that was in Ezra, the seventh chapter. We won't go back there and take time for that, but 69 prophetic weeks times seven days in a week is 483 years. And so when you go from 483 years, from 457 B.C., the decree of Artaxerxes, you mathematically come out to 26 A.D. But there's no year zero, so you have to add one year, and it comes out to 27 A.D. And that's mentioned in Halley's Bible Handbook and several other uh, Bible uh, handbooks. You can read and find out, yes, Jesus' ministry, although... Um, professing Christians uh, 
don't uh, they they have 30 AD or they have some other uh time when Jesus was crucified rather than 31 AD but his ministry began in 27 AD he his ministry lasted three and a half years he was crucified on Passover in 31 AD and I won't go into too much about but there's more evidence of course that on the night to be much observed, when he was put in a tomb, there was a red blood moon, a partial red blood moon. So you can actually have that additional evidence that it was 31 A.D. when that happened, because Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost said, well, this is the fulfillment of what Joel said. The moon shall be turned to darkness in the the I mean, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. And all of those people who heard Peter speak had experienced that day when there was supernatural darkness from noon to to uh, 3 o'clock, was it? And, uh, of course, that was not a solar eclipse. That was supernatural darkness. But the red blood moon that they saw was a lunar eclipse. That was the 15th of the first month. Uh, of course, the 14th was a Passover, and the 15th that night, when Jesus was put in the tomb, was a partial eclipse with a red blood moon. Well, that's uh, that's an aside, but I just wanted to mention that the, the many of those Jews knew that Jesus was the Christ and the Messiah and actually blasphemed them. And when Jesus said, you hypocrites, you know, you are destined for Gehenna, in a sense, he was saying. Unless they repented, they knew better. And so part of that, of course, was the uh, 70 weeks prophecy. They knew the Messiah was going to appear uh, that year in in his ministry. So Jesus began the 70th week in 27 A.D. and completed one half of that 70th week ministry. When is he going to complete the the next three and a half years of that 70th week. We discussed it in the Council of Elders. Dr. Meredith and all of us unanimously agree that that 70th week, the second half of that, will be at the beginning of the millennium. Christ is going to do what? Establish a covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Uh, you know that, but let's you know, look at that briefly in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah, the 31st chapter. Now, worldwide taught that the new covenant was going to be the marriage to Christ. Well, that is a covenant, but it's not the covenant mentioned by Jeremiah 31. It says that Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, the Eternal, when I make a new covenant with whom? The house of Israel, the house of Judah. That is specific. That's not symbolic. It's specific. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Eternal. But this is the covenant that I will make the house of Israel. After these days, says the Eternal, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Eternal, 
For they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Eternal. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. So that's going to be a wonderful period of time when Christ will establish that new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, of course, it's going to mean that extend on to all the Gentile nations as well. But that will be the beginning of it. And you know, uh, it's also repeated in Hebrews 8th chapter and Hebrews 10. And we are pioneers of the new covenant because God is writing on our hearts and minds His nature, His law of love, of keeping the first great commandment and the second great commandment, all defined by the first of five uh, commandments about loving God and the first four commandments of of loving God with our whole heart, soul, and mind and strength, and then starting loving your neighbors yourself with the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the eternal your God gives you. So we see here then a wonderful transition taking place. It's going to be hard work. It's going to take some time. And, of course, uh, David will be king. Let's take a look at that briefly. Uh, I'm sorry to move your place there in Ezekiel 36. Uh, if you go back to third, Ezekiel 36, we find the wonderful news of the cities being rebuilt, the ruins being uh, refurbished. Um, sorry, Ezekiel, Ezekiel 37. Um, um, Ezekiel 37, verse 24. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They also shall walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Uh, verse 26. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them in my sanctuary in midst forever. And, of course, that will happen both at the beginning of the millennium and the white throne judgment. We have the uh, resurrection of the uh, physical resurrection taking place in the earlier part of chapter 37 with an exceeding great army and Verse, 30, verse 11 of chapter 37, the whole house of Israel, our hope is lost. And uh, that God's plan is, is an amazing. We'll learn more about that course in the white throne judgment uh, that he says in Romans the 11th chapter, he has blinded Israel that he might have mercy on them. How was that? Well, because if they were held accountable, they may have committed the unpardonable sin. Now that they will have learned their lessons, they said our hope is lost, now they're resurrecting the white throne judgment, uh, they will be easily saved. All Israel shall be saved, as it said in Romans 11 chapter. But they were not saved during uh, this dispensation before the millennium begins. So we look forward to that time. We are pioneers of the New Covenant ourselves. I hope that all of you... um, Well, let me ask. Someone earlier uh, in the feast told me that I had taken a survey one time about how many knew the Ten Commandments. And that motivated this individual to learn the long form of the Ten Commandments. He said, uh, 
said, well, Mr. Ames, can I recite it to you? Well, okay. He recited the long form of the Ten Commandments to me. He only got one word wrong, um, but he did really well. So how many of you know the short form can name all ten of the Ten Commandments short form? Let's see your hands. Okay, good. That looks like about 99% of you. How many of you can recite the Ten Commandments long form, word for word? Whoa. Why? Oh. Oh, dear. <laughs> Only about 11 of you. You know, even our uh, at the feast, we had some of our children, uh, 11 and 12 years old, we were giving awards to those who could recite it long form. These are 12 and 13 years old at one of our feasts in earlier years. So if a 13-year-old can recite the Ten Commandments long form, I hope the rest of you... <sighs> Only only two percent of you. Oh, oh, your education has been sadly neglected. As we say, well, I'll just encourage you to. Of course, more importantly is that you're living it. But as we heard at the beginning, Mr. Senna and Mr. Sandor said, "Oh, I guess that was Mr. Weston saying, we are here to learn and to practice God's way of life." Well, that's what we're here for. And I just want to urge all of you again to know your Bible, to to ask God to write His laws on our hearts and minds. Now, the the false doctrine, the false teaching of our former association is, yeah, we're under the new covenant. It, God mystically does that. It has no meaning, you know. The Ten Commandments, uh, our commandments are written on our hearts and minds. You just you just love one another. No, they are rebelling against the commandments of God because they're not keeping them spiritually, number one, and, and even literally the seventh, uh, the fourth commandment, the seventh day, they rebel against God's commandments. They are rejecting the new covenant, although they claim that they're keeping the new covenant. But we have to know and practice all ten of the ten commandments and the spiritual application of it as Jesus magnified that in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And I just shake my head when I think we have these murders in some of the urban communities in some of our cities across the country, and you wonder, some of the shootings in some of our universities, and when what was that young person, was he ever taught, you shall not murder? You know, the sixth commandment? You shall not murder? No, maybe they weren't. But if if our, our civilization would keep just one commandment, what a different world we'd be living in. But uh, anyway, ask God to write His laws on, our, on your heart and, and on your mind. So we find this transition period of the second exodus uh, coming back, the captives coming back to the Holy Land, and that Jesus Himself will begin to be preaching and, of course, establishing that new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It's going to be a new restoration. Let's turn that to Acts 3, verse 22. Acts 3. I better be careful here. I diverge too much. Acts 3, in verse 22. Mr. Armstrong called this the pivotal Scripture of the Bible, Acts 3, and uh, but we'll lead up to verse 21, starting on verse 19. The Apostle Peter 
is preaching to the, his audience. Acts 3.19 Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. What would be restored? The government of God is what Mr. Armstrong would emphasize here. The government of God is not practiced except in God's church. And, of course, the government of God, the family of God, the coming kingdom of God is going to be restored to the whole earth. And that's what we're looking for. And, of course, we will have a job to work with those captives that have come back and teach them, re-educate them. We already saw that in Acts 30, verses, I mean, Isaiah 30, verses 19 and 20. You shall see your teachers and you'll hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk you in it. We have to re-educate. But we will also, turn Isaiah 40, we will also comfort people. Because here you have thousands, if not millions, coming back who've been in a similar holocaust, but yet survived in their captivity, and they're coming back. And they will be so humble, they will be so saddened, they'll be weeping. And so Isaiah 40 says, chapter 40, verse 1, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Eternal's hand double for all her sins. And I think I mentioned in one of the messages that uh, the, someone was writing, an Israeli was writing about the seven deadly sins of Israel, and he only gotten through three of them, uh, one of which was homosexuality. Uh, Tel Aviv's supposed to be one of the homosexual capitals of the world. And he said, this is one of the deadly sins of Israel, modern-day Israel. And the sex slave tri, tri, uh, trade was another one, and another one was abortion. So God is going to pay Judah double for their sins. But notice that when the people come back, that we will be able to comfort them just as Christ has that compassion on those who've gone through severe punishment and severe trial. Verse 10, um, Isaiah 40, uh, we'll start with verse 9. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up to your high mountain, O Jerusalem. You who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Yes, they will all come up to Jerusalem to worship the King of Kings. Verse 10, Behold, the Lord Eternal shall come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm. Now again, it says that for, you know, the, uh, is it the uh, Thyatira church uh, in Revelation 26, He that overcometh will I grant to give the rule over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. There's the aspect of government, of discipline, of judgment, of justice, and yet there's the other side of the coin, those who have already learned their lesson that need to be comforted, consoled, and encouraged. And Christ will pick up those 
who are mourning, those who are hurt, those who are suffering as a lamb in his arms. He'll have that comfort on the other side of the coin. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. So we have to be comforters as well as disciplinarians. You turn back to 2 Corinthians 1. You know your God's characteristic is one of compassion, and we have to have that compassion as well. 2 Corinthians, the first chapter. I already mentioned what are, what are some of God's titles and uh, what is his, his characteristic. He's omnipotent, omniscient, and uh, omnipresent, as it says in Psalm 139. But 2 Corinthians, the first chapter, gives another characteristic of God. First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. God is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And we will be comforting those captives that come back out who loathe themselves and are sorrowing who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You know, when you see those videos of uh, movie films of the Holocaust and and all these uh, prisoners who are just skin and bones, you know, your heart goes out to them and you want, you want them to recover you want them to be whole once again and have good health and be able to learn God's truth. We'll have that kind of compassion, and we'll have to re-educate the whole world. But it'll be one of reconciliation as well. We already saw how Judah and Ephraim will be reconciled, that they won't envy one another. Turn to Isaiah 19. Mr. Sandor um, emphasized this, but I'll take a different emphasis on it. Um, appreciate uh, the seven ways that uh, people are going to be converted in the millennium. We heard in that sermon. But here in Isaiah 19, we find the element of reconciliation. So it's another wonderful aspect of the transition period taking place at the beginning of the millennium. Isaiah, I find it here in my Bible, Isaiah the 19th chapter. Verse 23, Isaiah 19, 23. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria, uh, and the Assyrian will come to Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria. And the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. So again, as Mr. Sandor pointed out, uh, they are not going to serve one another, they are going to be served with one another. In that day Israel will be the one of three, with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the eternal of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel my inheritance. No longer will they be fighting one another. No longer will they have hatred and conflict uh, toward one another. They will have love towards one another, and they will be the third uh, with Israel and God will reconcile them, and they will be reconciled. So it's something to look forward to when you realize, yes, Arab nations 
and uh, Anglo nations and all the other nations together can have that reconciliation that will take place. But is that going to be peace all of a sudden? And yet that three-and-a-half-year period is going to be all of a sudden peace? Well, he says he's going to rebuke many nations far off. But what happens? Beginning in, in the, the Holy Land, is be, where Christ is, there's going to be peace, and the 12 tribes of Israel will begin to set the nucleus and the example, the model for all the Gentile nations, and that, uh, that model, that example, will go out to the rest of the world and spread out uh, as, uh, from Egypt to Assyria and then along all to the, all the other nations. But, Will everyone have learned his or her lesson? Mr. Armstrong wrote in The Wonderful World Tomorrow what it will be like, the cause of all world troubles. He was talking about Satan um, being in prison for a thousand years. But he writes on uh, page 38 of The Wonderful World Tomorrow, But that does not mean that the acquired satanic attitude will disappear from human minds immediately when Satan is put away. The multiplied millions shall have acquired it, that is, Satan's attitude. And even though Satan will then be restrained from continuing to broadcast it, what has been acquired as habit will not be automatically removed. It's a transition period. Yet God has made us humans free moral agents. He has given us control over our own minds, except as we may be blinded by Satan's pull of evil by deception. But no longer will earth's mortal humans be deceived. Now the all-powerful Christ and the immortal saints ruling under him will begin removing the scales that have blinded human minds. That is why I say... Complete utopia cannot be ushered in all at once. Multiple millions will still hold to the attitude of rebellion and vanity, lust and greed. But with Christ's coming shall begin the process of re-education, of opening deceived minds, of undeceiving minds, and bringing them to a voluntary repentance From the time of Christ's supernatural takeover and Satan's banishment, God's law and the word of the eternal will go forth from Zion, spreading over the whole earth. Isaiah 2, verses 3. So you're still going to have some nations that still have to learn their lesson. We already read in Zechariah 14 that if Egypt goes not up, they will, to the Feast of Tabernacles, they'll have no rain. Well, if God says, If they won't go up, he's implying that they won't. giving that an example. Well, what other nations will have problems? Turn to Ezekiel, uh, the 38th chapter, Gog and Magog. Eurasian nations will have difficulty. They are not going to accept God's government immediately. They're going to look, they'll see after maybe a few months or a year, they'll, they'll see that, wow, Uh, Look at that. Uh, Jerusalem's not even guarded. They don't even have uh, anti-ballistic missiles. They don't even have uh, a wall around their villages. And so they begin to think, huh, now's our chance. We've lost a lot of our 
uh, advanced uh, military weaponry, but we still have clubs. We still have metal uh, bars that we can use to fight and spears. We can make our own little um, weapons. So Ezekiel 38 Ezekiel 38, we find the attack of Gog against uh, Israel. And we find in uh, chapter 38, um, Now the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog in the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, Thus says the Lord Eternal, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will put uh, hooks in your jaws, lead you out, all your army, horses, horsemen, splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields and all of handling swords. Well, skip down to verse 11. You say, you will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. That's not the way it is now in Israel. Israel has its uh, dome anti-missile systems and it's uh, very strong militarily. Uh, they don't have unwalled villages, but this is the beginning of the millennium. There will be unwalled villages. I will go up to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls, neither having bars or gates. Take the plunder and take the booty to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited, against the people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods and dwell in the midst of the land. Obviously, Gog and Magog would not... Uh, been prospering. They haven't, haven't been keeping God's laws, and they're they're jealous of what's going on in the Middle East. Therefore, verse 14, Son of man, prophesy and say to God, Thus says the Lord Eternal, On that day when my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? Well, of course, they come down to uh, try to um, take over uh, skip ahead, we don't have much time, but skip ahead to chapter 39, verse 6. And I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in secure, security in the coastlands that they shall know that I am the Eternal. So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people. And then what's going to happen? Verse 8, verse 9. Those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and bucklers, the bows and arrows, the javelins and spears, and they will make fires with them seven years. Now, some church members say, well, that's, that, this is talking about Satan being loosed at a little, little season at the end of the millennium because the same thing happens. I might hold your place there. You go back to Revelation 20. Satan will be released from his prison, will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. And they come up to the beloved city. But God uh, sent fire come down from heaven, end of verse 9, from God out of heaven and devoured them. So it sounds similar to chapter 39. Well, you have in prophecy duality. The first Adam, the second Adam. You have uh, uh, ancient Babylon, you have spiritual Babylon. You have uh, ancient Israel, you have spiritual Israel. There's type and anti-type. And so you have what happens here is at the end of the millennium, how do we know that this is talking about at the beginning of the millennium in chapter 39? Because we read in verse 9, 
of Ezekiel 39, those who dwell in the cities of Israel shall go out and set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and bucklers, bows and arrows, the javelins and spears, and they will take make fires with them for seven years. So this is seven years going on into the millennium. When Satan is put away, at the end of the millennium, it's not going to be a seven-year gap in there. It's going to be immediate. God will call down fire from him, and that will end it. When the Israelis aren't going to be burying weapons for seven years. And, of course, he said, even seven months, verse 12, the house of Israel will be burying Gog and Magog in order to cleanse the land. So these are some of the events that will take place and uh, in the beginning of the millennium, and uh, we realize it's going to be an awesome transition period that takes place. But we have to, of course, be ready for that and realize that we are training as kings and priests and judges. We have to keep growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ and uh, know the truth. And uh, when we think uh, of our, my Recall back to my visit, our visit to uh, the Ark Encounter. My wife and went there Wednesday because we will not be with you on the Ark Encounter this coming week. And, and it just is very amazing, you know, just to see this huge Ark and uh, that God preserved Noah. Noah was a man of faith and said, uh, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord as well. When you read that back in, in Genesis uh, about the sixth chapter or so. But the art is awesome. It's just amazing. Uh, there are some lessons we can learn from that. There was a, uh, an interview um, by uh, a video, I think about 20 minutes long, kind of a humorous interview of, of Noah from the pagan cities. Well, Noah, what are you building this ark for? What is that for? Well, God told me to. And uh, I, I don't think the way Noah's portrayed was exactly the way. I think he was a little more mature than that. But he was very simply stating, uh, God told me to do this and gave me the dimensions. And, and uh, said, well, can we get on the ark as well? God will bring all those who listen to him into the ark. But they will not listen. I think that was one of the lessons that we, we realized that our duty is preaching the gospel, Matthew twenty four fourteen, as a witness to all the world, because they will not listen. That is internalize and respond to the message. But they will have been warned and have no excuse. And of course it tells us in Deuteronomy twenty eight that the message that we have now will be a witness to people during the great tribulation. And if when you are in captivity, you seek the Lord with all your heart, you'll be saved. So that's, that's a part of the message we're witnessing ahead of time. And anyway, at the Noah's Ark, uh, you'll find uh, a few fallacies I've already mentioned. Apparently some of you mentioned that the seventh day is not mentioned. It gives all the events of the six days. The seventh day is not emphasized, of course. And then one state, one of the exhibit, wonderful exhibits uh, throughout this, particularly the second floor, the third floor of the ark, they're trying to bore evangelize. And one excellent uh, exhibit was emphasizing the validity of the Bible. It was just very good. But there's another section that wants to tell you how to get to heaven. Well, that, that section is not so helpful. And... <laughs> And it amazes me that 
they they talk about eternal life, but they don't have any idea what that eternal life means. The Feast of Tabernacles shows us what the eternal life means, that we are serving as kings and priests and helping billions of people in the millennium and billions of people in the White Throne Judgment. They have no idea. I caught one of their statements, which is a, a fallacy. They say, when God creates something perfect, it remains perfect. That's what they're denying there is Genesis 1, verse 2. The earth became tohu and bohu. They're saying, oh, the, the earth can't become imperfect because God made it perfect. They're denying the existence of Satan's role. And you'll hear, of course, more about that from Mr. Wallace Smith in his Bible study on the Ark uh, Wednesday night, I guess it is. And uh, so they're denying the existence of Satan and the role of the destruction of the earth and how it became Tohu, Tohu and Bohu. And, of course, Isaiah 45, verse 8 said, God did not create it in Tohu. It became that way. So their fallacy that when God created something perfect, it remains perfect, denies free moral agency, denies the existence and role of Satan. So anyway, you might pick up on that uh, as you tour. But it's a wonderful exhibit, and uh, just to realize what God did. But in the day, as in the days of Noah, so shall it be in this end time. They will not listen. But we have to be in training as kings and priests and growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. We look forward to the time of the second exodus. We look forward to the time of re-education and restoration. We look forward to time of reconciliation. And we look forward to the time when Christ dwells in Jerusalem. We might turn to the end of the book of Ezekiel. We already sound, found that... Israel is going, Jerusalem is going to be called the city of truth. But it's also going to be called Yahweh Shammah, the very last verse of the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 48, verse 35. All the way around the city shall be 8,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that day shall be Yahweh Shammah. The eternal is there. So we will be there wherever Christ is. Let's turn to one final scripture. I could go on for another hour, but I better uh, keep to a schedule. Uh, Revelation seventeen fourteen. Revelation seventeen fourteen. God has revealed to us our awesome calling as kings, priests, and judges, and as the wife, the bride, first of all, and then the wife of Christ. And we will be in Jerusalem. We will help comfort the captives that come back. We will see that nations that resist God and don't come up to the Feast of Tabernacle will suffer the consequences. And Gog and Magog will have a serious lesson to learn when there are unwalled villages around the center of Jerusalem. But here in Revelation 17 and 14, These will make war with the Lamb, talking about all the nations of the world that will fight against Christ at His coming. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are called, chosen, 
and faithful. So brethren, as the bride of Christ, as those who are first called, first fruits in God's plan, let us be called, chosen, and faithful. Thank God that you are called to be kings, priests, and judges, and to realize that we will serve with Christ, looking forward to the kingdom of God on earth that will begin a thousand-year reign of a glorious family helping others into the kingdom of God.